Hi, I'm Ted Karstensen, and I'd like to welcome you to Caveat Founder, a regular series featuring founders sharing their experiences building developer-facing companies. Gain insight into what it takes to build a successful developer-facing company by hearing about big wins and epic fails directly from founders themselves. In this inaugural episode, we're proud to host Parse founder Ilya Sukar and Rainforest co-founder and CEO Fred Stevens-Smith. Ilya and Fred talk through several of the pricing challenges developer-facing companies encounter. They discuss the type of investors developer-facing companies should look for, and finally, they talk about the sometimes difficult transition from founder to CEO. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library. It's home to over 75 talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Hello, I'm Fred. I'm the CEO of Rainforest, and I am sitting across from a excited-looking Ilya, who is going to introduce himself. Hey, everyone. My name is Ilya. I started a company called Parse in 2011. The best way to describe it is uh, cloud services for mobile developers, and uh, we've had quite the journey. We sold the company to Facebook in 2013, and I ran that there for about two years as a one of these semi-independent subsidiaries. Uh, now I'm doing some other things at Facebook, uh, but I've generally been in this uh, world of developer tools and developer companies for quite some time. Awesome. So Ilya, we're hoping that you have some amazing, amazing lessons learned to share with us. And we had a little conversation before we started recording, but I think a bunch of really interesting things that you've gone through that maybe the next company you do, you would already know, you wouldn't make those same mistakes again. I think we both have some stories we can share for, for people that, that would make their lives easier, compress the amount of time it would take them to, to build a successful developer tools company. Totally. Um, so what, what do you want to talk about? I think pricing is obviously something that lots of people think about. We talked a little bit about that, the, the basic kind of playbook of the developer tool kind of customer base and how you monetize. Yeah, I think this is a really common thing that comes up with developer tools companies. I mean, first of all, I think people just delay thinking about this stuff. They build their product, they get their friends to use it, you know, it grows. And and for many people, it, you know, it's in this beta or free mode for for quite a long time. And we did this for a solid eight, maybe even 10 months, um, which in some, way was, some ways was great, but in other ways caused us a lot of pain down the road. Um, and a lot of this stuff is like very counterintuitive. The people with money actually want to see a real price tag on your website before using your stuff. Right. Um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of the things I do differently if I ever did a developer tools startup again, I'm not sure I will, <laughs> but um, would be to think about pricing earlier, to set pricing earlier, to charge from day one, and, and be more deliberate about this playbook that I think we and companies like Heroku kind of stumbled into, but are now, like you said, more of a playbook of having this wide, broad developer base that you know more or less pays you nothing, but loves you, evangelizes uh, your product, brings you into their larger organizations, and then you really end up making your, the bulk of your money on the top 5 or 10% of, of what ends up looking like more of enterprise sales. Right. And it's interesting, right, because a lot of investors, a lot of VCs don't really understand that model. Like if you say, I'm building a, you know, a software company selling to businesses, 
and so far we don't make any money, but we have tons of developers using us. For a lot of investors, that can be scary, right? And yeah. I think that's that's probably an obstacle for some people. Maybe if you you don't have access to the top tier Silicon Valley type investors, the YC network, that kind of thing, that could be a that could be a real challenge. If you're in the Midwest, you're trying to build a developer tools company, and the investors are like, well, where's the revenue, guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's a pretty tricky thing to pull off, and not many companies have. And so, the amount of investors who really get this and will fund you through that first, you know two years where there's really not much coming in and there's, you know, a bunch of buzz and a bunch of excitement and a bunch of free, smaller people using it. Yeah, the amount of investors who really get that, I think, are, are actually um, few in numbers. Let's talk a bit about pricing as well, because I think the really fascinating thing that we experienced is that charging for your stuff is, is, is an uncomfortable thing. Oh, yeah. And like for most of us, our developer companies, our developer tools companies, whatever we want to call them, have basically come out of us being nerds and wanting to fix a problem that we experienced in like a past life when we were working as a developer right. somewhere. Yeah. And so we're not the guys who are going out there and, you know, doing the lemonade stand. You know, we're not that like Richard Branson type story, right? The yeah. Mark Cuban type story of like always making money everywhere. Yeah. We more think of, or in my experience, most of, of our cohort tends to more think of the product first. Yeah. And they think of the craft of building the product. Yeah. And they think of, you know, building this beautiful experience that will solve this problem. And really, money is secondary to that, if even in, in mind at all. Yeah. You know, do you, have you managed to repress that? Do you now have a, a different way of seeing kind of charging for things? Certainly. Um, I mean, I think the process and some of the pain of building Parse up and realizing what it takes to make money has um, absolved me of that background. I would add to, to kind of your points is that a lot of the folks who build these kinds of companies were engineers who, yeah, weren't likely lifelong entrepreneurs and, you know, were, were, were just writing code for most of their days for years um, in, in prior jobs and probably haven't seen huge checks being signed themselves had never, you know, bought very expensive products necessarily, or even if you evangelize something that your company eventually adopted you probably don't quite know how much, you know, your VP of Eng is actually paying for that thing right. across, you know, across your team of maybe a hundred developers. And so it's almost this thing that you 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 end up discovering. Right. And that's absolutely a great point. And that's something that we we've come across time and time again at Rainforest is each time we can't, you know, coming out of YC or coming out of, you know, the lean startup movement, it's all about listening to your customers and all about iterating on feedback. But the counterintuitive thing about pricing is no one is going to tell you to increase your prices. Of course. Except from other entrepreneurs. Yeah. And something that you touched on earlier, which I think is a, a point worth just just drilling down into a little bit is that actually for some people they want to see a price tag. Oh yeah. And and the more expensive something becomes, the more they're like, oh, this is an actual solution I could present to my VP. Oh yeah. You know, I could present to my C CFO. And you know, below a certain yearly price tag, it's like, well these guys must just be fucking around. This is just like a joke. Of course. Yeah. I mean I think we had much better success once we got over the uncomfort of throwing out big numbers that we seemed were ridiculous to be charging for our product. Right. And, you know, that's that's the way the world works. And I, and I think that a lot of people get it, but developer tools companies are fall prey to this this difficult transition from this, you know, wide pay as you go, cheap user base to like, 
when the serious guys want to buy your product, you better come prepared with a high price tag, with an enterprise contract that has an SLA, that has support, that has all of these things that, you know, you've, you've never really thought about. You might not value much yourself, but at the end of the day, the buyer on the other end really wants to see. Right. And I think that's, that's absolutely key for, for everybody who's, who's listening to this and maybe going through the same kind of, the same kind of struggle in their own head of like, well, you know, what would I pay for this? Here's the answer. It doesn't fucking matter what you would pay for this because you're not your own customer. (laughs) I don't, you know, we wouldn't like, we would struggle to pay for rainforest because it's such a high price point, but that's good because I don't want us as a customer. You know, like we are an annoying customer who has extremely high support demands and wants a ton of product and doesn't have clearly defined processes or management hierarchies, doesn't have a budget assigned for this. Like, yeah. And I think that's the key to understand. It's like you are not your customer for these large enterprise deals. And I think a point that you touched on, which was absolutely worth repeating, is that most of us have never been in a purchasing department at a Global 2000 company. Absolutely. And these are the guys who are giving, you know, us whatever N percent of our revenue, the majority of it, the, every single company who reaches that kind of scale, the Herokus, the GitHubs, the passes of the world, like most of their revenue is coming from Fortune 500 companies, right? Or SMB or enterprise. And yeah, that is a very rarefied set of people who really understand how those kind of purchasing decisions get made. And I think that's something that both of us will take to whatever companies we bring next. And I know for sure that the the enterprise pricing model for whatever I do next is going to be six figures. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be six figures as the minimum entry starting point because otherwise people don't take you seriously. Yeah, and I think some useful things to think about are like, at the end of the day, you built this company because you had this expertise and the people on the other end are interested in buying your product because they don't have anywhere near the expertise in, 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 in building this thing. And so there's just this wide gap where you, you often feel like or developers in general, there's, there's, there's a sentiment that like a lot of people could build this themselves. It's, you know, it's, right. it's something you put together from a bunch of different open source tools and there's just so much value in, not having to hire the team, not having to manage the development process, not having to do all these things that you know is effectively the value of your product being packaged up. And uh, the price tag is actually much higher than anyone expects. Exactly. And, that, and, and to put a, put a cap on it, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really great way to see it. it. Traditionally, we price things, we think about pricing in terms of cost, kind of plus and yeah. actually you know that's like a business book thing but it's really true you should think about it as value minus you know like that's the key paradigm shift of going from well it costs this much and these are our infrastructure costs and this is you know roughly what we think you know it's costing us to develop this stuff to well no but what does this actually what how valuable is this to like a fortune 500 company? well yeah and also like I've, I've given this advice to some folks who are like oh I, sh- I don't know how to price my product it's like open up your own payroll like your your ADP or whatever it right. is you're using. Right. How much are you paying your engineers? Well, these other companies are probably paying their engineers a lot more. And so for them to be able to recreate what you've done, just imagine that. Um, the last thing I'll say about this this pricing stuff is that often what I see when these companies take like this, you know, broad um, starting point with you know a big self serve product, it can be really interesting to see which use cases or verticals emerge from that. So in our case, we built Parse, and um, we were generally targeting mobile developers who wanted to focus on the front end, the native code, and not um, on all the back end stuff. 
but we weren't exactly sure for whom that would be most valuable to start. And it turned out that this whole world of agency-built apps for big brands was a massive market. You know, there are lots of apps being built out there, you know, for Ferrari and Home Depot and Sesame Street and all these things that you maybe not, don't have on your phone, but parents have on their phones or, you know, in general, the companies building them like ascribe a ton of value to them, have huge budgets and care a lot about them. Um, and that turned up to be a perfect market for us. The developers there were evaluated based on their front end experience, not their back end stuff. I guess my, my larger point is that I thought we were primarily building for people just like us, but it turns out we made money from um, verticals that were still developers, but fairly far removed. These were people building stuff in agencies in New York. You know, they weren't startups. They weren't, they, they really couldn't do it themselves in a lot of ways. Um, and going through that customer discovery process is really interesting. Mm. Right, and and the and the point the point to make it even more explicit is that if you hadn't have been charging for that and you hadn't been charging serious money, you wouldn't have even noticed that signal. Possibly, you would have followed the confirmation bias of like we're our own customer, right? <laughs> Which everyone thinks until you start to realize like well, actually, the people who are paying for this, like we've said, aren't necessarily you. Yeah, we had this amazing moment where the Food Network uh, had hired an agency to build their flagship app. They built it on Parse. They looked just like any other sign up. You know, it was like some unknown email. Um, <laughs> and you know, at some point I got an email from the like a parent conglomerate scripts, which I didn't really have any clue about, but you know, they own a ton of media properties. Uh, and they were like, hey, we're you know we're about to launch this app. Or maybe they had even launched it at that point. Um, and they were like you know, where's we need an enterprise contract. We have no, we have no one to call. We have no SLA. Like this right. thing's getting advertised on national TV, and I was like, "Holy crap! What's an enterprise contract?" Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, but to some degree, I was like surprised that they had gone all this way, and that there's this world that, like, you know, they were ready to pay, and they were almost like astonished that we hadn't asked them to pay already. Right. Um, so anyway, the which is the ideal situation, right? It certainly was ideal, but if I had to do it all over again. It would sure would have been awesome to figure that out much sooner rather than later because we ended up making pretty good money on that whole vertical, but you know we didn't really realize this until maybe a year in. Mm. And and not to not to beat this pricing thing to death, yeah, but but um but how would you you know next time around how would you figure that out? Do you think there are ways you could compress that? Is it more about being sensitive to the signals? You know when you start to see patterns emerging, how how do you think you could have done that that faster? I think so. I think um, it's not losing the the forest for the trees in some sense. Where where I think we spent a lot of time growing our numbers, which was great. It was great for fundraising. It was great for a lot of things. But we were growing just like the amount of signups, the amount of active users, just like the amount of developers we had exposure to, and we built a good brand. And it was there's good in a lot of ways. But I think if we had gotten earlier to the process of like who's really using this, who's actually launching good standalone apps on this and can we go talk to them as fast as possible i think we would have discovered these like you know use cases that were really in the end the winners fascinating and that you know that's funny because that's something that i i've been thinking about a lot recently as well and i think for us and so to be clear what i'm what we're talking about here we're talking about 
thinking about and focusing on the right kind of metrics. And I think the, you know, specifically engagement in this case. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing that, that we definitely have seen at Rainforest is that we kind of try to, I think, driven mostly by, by fear, actually, fear of the unknown, you know, fear of failing or whatever it was. I think we, we tended to focus on those kind of top line metrics, you know, how much money are we making? How many new customers are we adding? What's all of our sales funnel look like? Yeah. What does our activation funnel look like? Those kind of things without necessarily, like you say, drilling into, okay, who is actually deploying great apps on this? You right. know, who is actually creating value? Because you know, in your gut, right? When you look at an account, you're like, oh, this is just some joke thing that someone paid 50 bucks when they forgot. And it's 24 months later, right? Yeah. <laughs> Versus, okay, this is a real serious user. Yeah. And for whom is it really critical? Right, yeah, and, and 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 drilling into those numbers that that can that for us was something that we postponed probably twelve months. You know, we pushed it out twelve months longer than it should have taken us to really drill down into. Okay, we should actually pre-churn this customer. You know, we should actually say to this customer, hey, it doesn't look like you're getting a lot of value out of this because you're not running your tests anymore. You know, whereas for us, it was like, oh, damn, don't look at usage. You know, shit, we don't want to necessarily know that 50% of our customer base is not really using the product, right? Which is where we basically were a year ago. Yeah. Um, and, and it took a lot of hard conversations and a lot of like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, uh, fear and unhappiness to get to that point now where we're very brutally honest about that with ourselves. Like if three months in a customer is decrease usage at any point in any seven day period, they are going to basically churn and they are not going to be a good customer. And really it's better for us and better for the business to say, hey, look, it looks like it's not working out. Here are some other options. Yeah. So on the hiring side, I think that's also something that for people like us who create companies like ours, you know, that's something that we tend to really get wrong, I think, in terms of you know, maybe focusing too much on the product without necessarily thinking about the other supporting functions, if we want to call them that, that can really turbocharge your growth or your revenue or your leads or, you know, whatever. Do, do you have some thoughts on that? You know, if you were doing the whole thing again, would you hire certain roles earlier on? Would you not hire certain roles? Are there, is there kind of fundamental lessons you've learned there? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit of two minds here. I, I can name a lot of instances where I wish we had hired someone much sooner. I wish we had hired our first operations person much sooner. I wish we had hired our uh, marketing person much sooner. In some ways, I wish we had spun up our sales team much sooner. On the other hand, I'm a pretty big believer in the, in the founders doing the jobs themselves first. And I think a lot of our success in hiring those roles was that we had done it ourselves. We felt the pain of carrying a pager, or I like, you know, learned to be a salesperson for a long time. For you know, a while I was just doing sales and, and marketing, and so I, I think I learned what it takes to be good at the job, and I got better at evaluating, you know, these candidates and and really like being able to ramp them up and all this stuff. So. You know, I don't think there's any optimal answer here, but certainly that moment when you stop having to carry a pager and when you're not the first person to pick up the phone when someone calls and, you know, when you're not tweaking every little newsletter that you send out yourself, those are great moments because you can start to really transition into like that CEO or, you know, real leader where you're always focused on that next thing. You're focused on what's the most important thing for your company and in a lot of ways, you're doing the things that 
you know, aren't yet covered by an amazing team member. Which is a, which is a fascinating point. And, and that is a very hard trade-off to make, right? Because I think, you know, on the flip side, one, and I completely agree with you, I also, that's what we've done. And, and every time we've tried to, you know, make the hire before me or my co-founder has really internalized what it takes to be good at that, you know, not great, but just good or maybe even mediocre. You yeah, know? you're never going to be great, but right. you, you might as well get to at least mediocre. <laughs> right. And, and every time we've tried to make that hire before we've managed to be mediocre ourselves, it hasn't worked out. You know, I mean, sales is the perfect example of that. We tried to hire way ahead of us doing sales basically because of our fundamental discomfort with the idea of selling to people you know yeah. of, of getting money from people but I guess the interesting thing and I think the other thing that I would I would be very cautious of next time I do a company is spending too much time um, with the kind of um, uh, you know I think the risk on the other side is, is spending too much time in the kind of busyness uh, lie you know where it's like I love doing marketing because I actually get to see my numbers go up every day and I get to go in and I get to do this stuff that is like, I really just have a list of to-dos and at the end of the day they're done and all of my time is spent doing actual work, you know? Right. Whereas being a leader, you know, the other side of the kind of defining strategy for the company, coaching your team, trying to find who are going to be the next big key hires who totally. are really going to change things, that can feel like not work a lot totally. of times. You can spend a whole day and you can come back and be like, what the hell did I even achieve? Right, you could have spent all day having recruiting coffee meetings right and, and you're super and caffeinated at the end of the day and you're like well, are any of them going to join i don't think so <laughs> right, exactly <laughs> and the thing is though the perverse thing is is that that kind of actually push the company forward more than you know yeah, you're totally. spending all day looking at obsessively at google analytics so it is definitely an interesting definitely interesting balance right to figure out when that moment is where okay i'm getting diminishing returns in this role, you know, I'm starting to become a bottleneck. Now is the time to make that hire. Do you do you remember any key moments where you realized you were making that transition from being a founder, right, which is wearing all the hats, doing all of the stuff, essentially as a CEO, being the janitor in some ways, doing all the stuff that no one else wants to right. or can do, to being the kind of leader, the CEO? I don't think it happens all at once. I mean, I think when you can land, land those key hires and then kind of move on to the next area, that sort of starts to feel like true leadership and true strategic thinking. And I think when you can start to kind of plan projects and push through initiatives that like would not otherwise get done because, you know, things are working there, you know, everything's in place. We make money, like customers are coming in. Uh, but when you start to spend your time thinking like, well, we really could do 10 times more here. Or if we really like changed the way we structured our product offering, we could split out these different use cases and you know, suddenly we can make a bunch of money on, in our case, push notifications. Like at first, push notifications for us were just like this one, you know, one of 10 features that our whole thing offered. It turns out for us that a huge amount of the people who signed up for Parse really just wanted push notifications because they had other backends in place. They were more established companies. But this was a thing that tons of companies struggled with and really just wanted to bolt on and get it over with and pay someone else to handle for them. And one of those moments for me was when I spent a ton of time like rearranging our product offering so that it was like very clear that you could only use push and you could only pay us for push. And that was like a first class product for us. And it required rearranging marketing, rearranging our pricing plan, rearranging all these things that, you know, I don't think the team would have done 
it wouldn't like in the day to day, it wouldn't have really gone with this, you know, massive effort. But it takes the CEO or you know one of the founders to push it down and make everyone do their part to like do this, you know, very long kind of big project. Absolutely. So I guess the other stuff that that I think was interesting that you touched on in the in the little chat we had before we started recording there was was on on kind of setting up expectations around you know support around responsiveness around always having the ceo's phone number whatever it may be yeah you know going from this do things that don't scale right. to no do things that fucking scale yeah. and i think that that's something that i've i've given a lot of advice to and people who are you know maybe 12 months behind us the founders is like, I think a lot of people take that maybe too far, the do things that don't scale. And they start to bottleneck their own growth or the company's own success because they are still the main support point of contact or they are still on every single sales call or, or whatever. Do you, do you have thoughts around that, around, around doing things slightly differently next time? Any lessons learned on that? So yeah, this, this has definitely been a challenge for us. I don't know what the latest numbers are, but you know, at some point we crossed like 500,000 developers. We have these massive numbers these days, and you know, rewind back four years, it's like everyone had my cell phone. We would answer emails just instantly. In a lot of ways, we would build people's apps for them. Like if they asked us a question, and we were like, "This isn't really a question about parse. They're just struggling to build some other part of their app." We would just say, "Heck, we're just going to help them. We're going to just be helpful because I think you know we can we can get this done for them." That just didn't scale. You know how to avoid it in another iteration is a tricky question. I think that um, I mean I think one of the things you have to do is you have to get similar to what we just talked about. I think you have to get the CEO and the founder and everyone else out of the critical path by hiring sales by hiring. You know, customer success. We call them developer advocates. Different people call it different things. For some time, they're probably going to carry the burden of the same expectations, even as you scale. And then you really have to kind of do some projections. I think that's where we really struggled. Is you know, growth in some ways is it like sneaks up on you, right? And at some point, you're like, oh, we just can't answer all the emails. We we can we can't possibly ever keep up with this stuff. And I think if we had been more confident about our growth trajectories and like thought about it a bit earlier, we would have figured out like, hey, we really need to reset expectations here and we need to do a better job communicating with people and setting up a more scalable community in terms of, you know, the forums that we have, the incentives for people to help themselves, the types of documentation we have, the like just outset expectations we set that we, sorry, we can't really build your app anymore for you. You know, I don't know if I have any like key advice. I think it's more like realize it early and then be deliberate about what you really do want to be doing. And so now we have fairly rigid like protocols for support. Different tiers of customers get different levels. Um, you can't just call us, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, unless you're paying us a ton of money. <laughs> um, getting on that earlier and and being a, in some ways, being a bit more optimistic about the like way the curve is going. Because I think we always thought that like the growth wouldn't last, and then you know we'd get ahead of it because we'd be able to finally hire enough people to really like provide the same level of service. But if you're really truly growing, you just end up having to segment your customers and doing more to set expectations with the ones that really aren't paying you much money. So 
in the remaining time we've got left, I'd like to go off script a little bit and uh, get a bit philosophical. Okay. Um, <laughs> so something that is I've been thinking about a lot recently is kind of strengths and weaknesses in founders. Yeah. And I think there's basically two schools of thought. One is make yourself a you know action man machine you know, Paul Graham, Mark Benioff, Mark II, all of the stuff that you're not good at, you've got to relentlessly focus on it. You know, if you're scared of spiders, go and buy a pet tarantula type thing. Right. The other side is focus, you know, obsessively on your strengths, the strengths of those of the others in your founding team and try and hire for the areas that you don't have. Yeah. Do, do you have thoughts about this? Have you experienced a, some sort of journey on, on that front, you know, in terms of kind of strengths and weaknesses? Do, what do you think about someone who, you know, who is maybe a five-person team, they've just raised a seed round, they're really, really uncomfortable with selling. You know, yeah. they don't like asking for money. They're the CEO and they're like, well, does this mean I can't ever, you know, be a successful company? Right. I think it's interesting. I think there's this kind of middle phase. I think certainly when you're still in like, hey, we just raised a seed and we were five folks, then I think the best companies are the ones where the founder, frankly, like sucks it up and gets good enough at just about everything that's necessary to build a great company such that, again, they can manage those people, identify those people that are truly great at each function and build an organization around themselves where you do have like a great sales leader, you have a great marketing leader, you have a great engineering leader, all of that. I think if you don't get there, then at least in our types of companies, there's plenty of others, like the founder's going to end up coding all day. Because that is their strength, right? That's what got them into this in the first place. Right. That's super tempting. Like just sitting and like writing more code and building more features, that's super tempting to just do that. But if you never get out of that mode and, and actually build an organization that can scale everything else that you're doing, you're going to be stuck. That said, I think once companies get more mature, I think, again, the best CEOs end up really being careful with their time and focusing on what really matters. So I think, for example, at Facebook, one of the amazing things about Mark is that he's done this really, really well. He's still very, very involved in the product. And in, in, in all the places that he's involved in, he's really just really good. And I think for the things that he cares a little bit less to do, he's found great leaders to do those things and he trusts them. And, you know, obviously has oversight and is involved, but he spends most of his time doing the things that he really loves to do and is really best in the world at. Right. And, and that's an amazing point that you make about it's really these two modes, right? It's, it's the very much the early stage, wear all the hats, get great at all of the stuff that doesn't yet exist in the company, yeah. relentlessly fight against the temptation to just, you know, bury yourself in the product and be a craftsman and just right. believe in the total fallacy of one more feature will move us to 10% month to month growth or week on week growth or whatever. Yeah. And then also very much realizing when you've gone beyond that, you've hired excellent people, give them room to grow, give them true ownership and authority, and then focus in on the stuff that you are actually really naturally talented and excited about because that's really what's going to make the difference for the company. Yeah. And at the end of the day, things like motivating people, managing people and recruiting people, you're always going to have to be good at that or at least, you know, getting better at it all the time. 
And I think one thing, you know, one one kind of little piece of advice I would have for, you know, a, an early stage founder who's thinking, but shit, I don't know anything about marketing or like, I don't want to do sales or, you know, it's scary to me to do customer success and look at spreadsheets all day. You know, one thing I'd say to them is you already have a huge advantage because you built your product and you came up with the idea right. and you had the key insight. And, you know, this is something that I think people who haven't, for example, raised a reasonable amount of money money in the past also tend to really discount. When you're sitting across from a VC, right, you have spent the last two, three, four years, whatever years, obsessing over this problem. They've spent the last 10 minutes thinking about it, yeah. right? And so you have this fundamental informational advantage which predisposes you to be great at convincing a VC that you have a great idea, to be great at selling your product, right? To be great at marketing your product. And because someone else who comes in, even if they have this, you know, long kind of, um, brilliant history in, in that particular area, they still are, are coming fresh to this idea. You know, our, our head of sales always says to me and my co-founder, you guys will always be the best sales engineers in the company. Yeah. There will never be anyone like you who knows the product like you, who knows the benefits of the product like you, the shortcomings. And so I think that's something that should give people listening to this a bit of confidence and, and actually, you know, it's not such a daunting task to, to be able to sell your own product well. You just have to really just face the scary things. And I think that's exactly what it comes down to is can the founder, can the founder suck it up to the extent that they can really just grind through the painful things, not get obsessively stuck in the corner focusing on the craft totally. of products. Yeah. You know? yeah, I mean, this is the Andreessen Horowitz way of thinking is like the technical founder who built the product, that's the hardest thing is to build a great product. And the best CEOs come out of the ones who then make that transition into everything else. There's certainly some companies that go in the reverse direction, where there's a non-technical sales-focused leader who starts, but imagine their quandary, right? <laughs> you know, how do I build a good product? How do I build a good product? Or how do I yeah. evaluate and lead an engineering team? And how do I keep the innovation going. And so in a lot of ways, you know, another encouraging thing is like, you're actually in a great position. Building things is very, very hard. Everything else is also hard, but you at least have a product that you believe in, that you care about. Taking that out to the world is, is really the next step. A, a bonus question on philosophy, and then I think unless you have anything else you want to add, we're probably, we're probably done here. The, uh, something that a, a number of investors that I really respect and, and other people who are in a position to have seen many success stories within the world of startups that, that we live in, right, um, have said is basically the people who are ultimately successful never really doubted that they were going to succeed. Is that something that you've seen? I put it another way, something that they say in the introductory meeting to Y Combinator used to be at least great founders are formidable. And yes. if you don't feel formidable today, you can actually, in some ways, fake it until you make it. Yeah. You can try and become formidable. Uh, do, have you seen that yourself? Do you, have you gone through any kind of journey on that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I think if you hear the inside story of the world's greatest startups, everyone at some point doubts if they can make it to that next hump. And I think one of the most interesting things is that as soon as you conquer one challenge, there's just another huge daunting challenge, you know, coming up right in front of you. And I think that this, this process of, of kind of making it over the first few and getting comfortable with that 
you really do have to have some kind of innate, innate level of uh, formidability, but then it builds on itself. And I think you end up in this, in this state where, yeah, you don't know if you're going to really pull off the next thing, but you know that you've pulled off a bunch of other stuff and you've really grown and, and, and done interesting things. So, so why not try it? Why not go out there? And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting journey for people. I think there is some uh, base level of formidability that I think is required to, to do something crazy like build a tiny startup and, you know, get it going. But, you know, every amazing founder that I've ever met can, can mention a hundred or a thousand times where they were like, oh my God, I can't sleep at night. I don't know if we're going to make it to next month or to next week. And they just push through it. And then they get more and more confident and they push through it and they push through it and they push through it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much to Heavybit for hosting this. Either if people want to harass you online with questions about what we've talked about, are there any channels? Um, sure. I, I guess Twitter. Uh, Who are you on Twitter? Um, Ilya Sue. I-L-Y-A-S-U. Ilya Sue on Twitter. I will yeah. be tweeting you inappropriate GIFs. I am, or totally GIFs, cool. I should say. Uh, I am at Fredsters underscore S cool. on Twitter. That was the handle that I chose when I was 12 years old, first experiencing Hotmail. Nice. Um, and that, back then there was a lot of giggling about Hotmail because we thought it was some sort of naughty email service. <laughs> and I remember it took us three hours to find a, a valid US zip code when I signed up for it. So nice. we've come a long way. Yeah, indeed. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Caveat Founder, brought to you by Heavybit. Head over to heavybit.com to sign up to be notified when the next episode is available. And while you're there, check out our library. It's home to over 75 talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.